Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. The IFG minibus pulled rather late into London and then Brighton yesterday afternoon, many hours after leaving the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. But we will be back on the road, or rather this time uh, the trains, uh, in just a few days because next up in the calendar is Labour's annual conference. And this is going to be a big one. With a general election drawing ever closer, what is the task facing Keir Starmer in Liverpool? Will the Labour leader start adding detailed policies to his Big Five missions? Will there be policy U-turns or will we see barnacles being carefully removed from the boat? And what challenges or traps has Rishi Sunak set out for Labour? All this to come. With me throughout, looking surprisingly healthy after 48 hours of living and breathing conference centre air, is IFG Deputy Director Emma Norris. Hi Emma, have you caught up on your sleep? I've caught up on my sleep and I've caught up on my greens after eating an entirely beige diet at Tory conference. <laughs> And I'm delighted to be joined again by Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor at The New Statesman, and making his IFG podcast debut, Josh Simons, director of Labour Together. Now, Josh, can you just very quickly for the listeners tell us about Labour Together? Who are you? Yes, of course. And it's great to be here. Labour Together is a think tank that works very closely with the Labour Party and with the Labour Party's leadership to help set out and develop bold ideas and policies for what we hope will be the next Labour government. Okay, so before we look ahead to Labour's Liverpool get-together, let's briefly take stock of what happened in Manchester. Emma, can you give us a lowdown of the mood in the Conservative Party? Lots of people started out at conference saying, oh, it's so quiet, it's much quieter than normal. And look, that was definitely true. It felt quieter overall, just in terms of people and in terms of, I suppose, kind of general vibe. But I think the big point for me on Conservative Party conference this year was just how divided the Conservative Party felt, even at conference. Um, you know, it was really clear there's a kind of big internal battle going on for the kind of future soul of the party. You saw Andrew Boff, literally a you know Conservative London Assembly member, dragged from the conference hall um, whilst he was protesting Braverman's speech. I mean, not really even protesting it. There were packed rooms absolutely everywhere that Jacob Rees-Mogg went, everywhere that Liz Truss went. But on the other hand, you had people queuing up to buy Theresa May's book. I mean, my colleague Jill Rutter claims that there was an hour-long queue to uh, to purchase a copy of the book. So there was very much a kind of, there was a sense of two camps. I think, though, the most striking thing was that in those two camps, the right of the party was clearly very dominant. The growth rally that Liz Truss was holding was packed out. Nigel Farage was popping up all over the place. Um, Swella Bravman obviously attracted enormous interest, not just in her speech, but again, everywhere she went, the kind of membership were there, were packing out rooms. Um, audience members at one event I was at were kind of clapping along to suggestions of ditching or watering down the, the 2050 target. And I think by comparison to that kind of energy around the right of the party, the moderates felt quite quiet. They definitely didn't have the same kind of visible potential leadership candidates. It was clear what their kind of policy priorities might look like. And so it felt like a divided party, but with one side of the divide more dominant than the other. The big story at Conservative Conference was HS2, and you've written about that for us this week. We'll come on to what it might mean for Labour later, but what was your reaction to the decision and how it was handled? So things that Sunak got right, one, he's right that the costs of the project have spiralled enormously. I think we started out thinking it was going to cost about 57 billion. Now it's over 100 billion. And I think, you know, that connects to all sorts of problems we see time and time again when it comes to infrastructure projects in this country where we're really bad at estimating the the costs accurately or giving enough flex in budgets to take into account when things change. And we're really bad at cost control during delivery. So I think, you know, he got some of that, that piece right. But I think it's the casting 
of the decision as part of this, you know, big argument on long-termism that feels pretty hard for people to take. It's much more likely that this is a decision that is driven by the desire to create some short-term financial headroom uh, to allow him to fund tax cuts ahead of the general election. So, you know, idea that it's spun out of control financially, true. The idea that this has got anything to do with long-termism, I think, is uh, is unlikely to be the case. Actually, it's got some pretty bad consequences for the long term. Already, I think industry has been quite worried by the signals um, that they have had from Sunak on net zero. And now on top of that, you're starting to call into question infrastructure projects that the Chancellor said only, what, 10 months ago um, he was fully committed to. And now we're seeing you know, a, a backtrack on that. So I think it's causing some real kind of instability um, for industry. Now, look, it's not just this government who are bad at sticking to uh, to infrastructure projects and seeing them through. This has been a problem for about 30 years, um, but it is a problem. Um, and it's one that any government now or future is going to need to to, to get right. Well, of course, the government would argue that, that, that what they've done is a change of prioritisation. And I guess we will see when we get to the autumn statement, the reality of that, that point you made about whether this is really about creating fiscal headroom. We will. And you're right. They have argued it's about reprioritisation, that all of the 36 billion that they, you know, have saved is going to be spent on other kind of more effective um, northern connectivity rail projects. I think not exactly inspiring confidence is the fact that lots of the projects that they listed are either ones that have already been announced or already planned. In one case, I think a tram in Bristol not only had been announced, it had been completed eight years ago. So uh, <laughs> yeah, let's wait and see uh, how that pans out. And there were quite a lot of quite a lot of attention to Keir Starmer. So Ella Braverman went quite big on her attacks on him. Michael Gove had a bit of a pop. Rishi Sunak mentioned him in his speech. Do you think things are getting a little bit personal now? They are. I think Rishi Sunak was asked in um, one of the early interviews of the conference season, you know, to say something complimentary about Keir Starmer, and he he just didn't. Um, and you know, you can see that he couldn't bring himself to say anything no, about him. I think, could I think it's, it's sort of quite. It's not very, I mean, it's not very what you'd imagine from a man like Rishi Sunak, who everyone who's worked with him have said how courteous and sort of Mm. mild-mannered and sort of softly spoken he is. So I was quite surprised at that. And I think it's all part of this number 10 kind of push to get Rishi Sunak to take his kind of cashmere sweater off and like roll his (laughs) sleeves up and, you know, this is Rishi unleashed. And I think that was the aim of this conference to try and start building those dividing lines with Labour, but particularly with Keir Starmer, because he's a problem for them. Keir Starmer is not threatening enough to vote in the way that Jeremy Corbyn seemed to have been perceived to be back in those days. Um, and so he's not sort of scary enough for those for those swing voters who might be tempted to vote Labour this time round. So they've got to build a personal case against Starmer. And Sunak's other bold, you might call it, pitch was to say that he should be seen as the change candidate uh, in the next general election which after 13 years of Conservative government in which he's been Chancellor and Prime Minister for the last, well, much of the last three, is quite a quite a claim. Do you think that's going to be worrying to Labour, that style of uh, argument from the Conservatives? Well, I think they've definitely finally picked up on something that Labour had done a while ago, because Keir Starmer's got his rhetoric about um, stopping sticking plaster politics. So stopping these short-term solutions that don't work and look at the country in a more long-term way. Clearly, Rishi Sunak and his team has 
finally picked up on that as well. The conference slogan was long-term decisions for a brighter future. So they're thinking about the long-term and they also want to present themselves as a change from what we've seen before. He talked about the last 30 years of status quo broken politics, which is interesting because you know that includes a number of conservative mm-hmm. governments, but also 30 to me sounded a little bit like 13 <laughs> in his speech. And obviously we constantly hear Starmer saying 13 years of Tory mistakes. Um, and so I think... Um, both men, ironically, are kind of trying to do the same thing. I think Sunak has missed the boat on it, though. I was speaking to a very respected pollster who said his chance to distinguish himself from the past Tory regimes like that of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss was when that Privileges Committee report came out and he didn't take that chance then. And apparently that's when you saw his personal approval ratings just fail to pick up. Well, with that, let's flip our attention to the Labour conference. Josh, we have asked what the mood was in Manchester. What do you think the mood will be like in Liverpool? Serious is what I think the mood will be like. This is a a conference where what matters is not the sort of buzzy appetite for radical reform coming out of the fringes. What matters is the speeches and the arguments of the people who are now presenting and positioning themselves to be the next government of this country. I think that Labour will um, make a real effort to present itself as, you know, not interested in the Tory political traps that have just been laid and as thinking itself about how it would govern, what it would do in government and, you know, setting its own framework for the general election campaign argument that it will make. So I think that, you know, some of the chatter before conference is always about excitement and energy and, you know, where it may be on the cusp of government and all the rest of it. I actually think that seriousness about the task ahead is is the sort of tone that will um, characterize Labour's approach um, to, the, to this conference. And I think, I think it's a very good thing, lest uh, they succumb to both electoral hubris, but also um, given the scale of the problems that the country faces, which is ultimately what they should be thinking about. And we're recording this on Thursday, so while the Rutherglen by-election is underway, and so we don't know the outcome of that, what do you think are the, the possible implications of a Labour win or indeed a Labour loss in Rutherglen for the how the conference then goes? My friends and colleagues who've been up there have said that you know things are quite positive on the doorstep, and in particular, there's a real unified anti-SMP vote that is starting to sort of form and coagulate. And as we all know, that really matters in first past the post. You know, it's as much an anti-vote as it is a pro-vote. Um, so I think that what we will learn is how effectively Labour can sort of um, siphon the different places that the anti-SNP vote comes from and be the, ben- the single beneficiary of it and seats where that looks most likely. I think if we win, it really changes the sort of attitude, uh, the sort of atmosphere of, um, of conference because it puts Scotland, you know, back on the map as a serious place for um, for Labour to be thinking about winning seats. And of course, polls have already done that. But polls are one thing. Winning an actual election where real human beings turn up, put crosses on ballot papers and generate a result is a completely different thing. Um, and I think that it will really sharpen minds on the sort of opportunities, but also tensions in how in the argument and policy agenda that Labour develops between England, Wales and Scotland, because they're not always perfectly in harmony. And more generally speaking, as you mentioned, the polls are holding up for Labour thus far. What does that mean Starmer's task is at conference? Well, Starmer's task for conference, I think, would be the same regardless of the weekly variations in um, polls because they never mean all that much. I mean, the the sort of big picture electoral context here is that, you know, Labour are somewhere between sort of 16 on the lower bar and 19, 20 points ahead. 
you know, depending on how you think about um, the the distribution of people who are currently saying they don't know how they will vote and how, in fact, they will vote, Labour needs a lead of, you know, lower end 9, 10 points, upper end sort of 13, 14 points to be confident of winning a majority of one. And people forget that. That means we essentially have a sort of five, six, seven point lead. That is not all that much. Um, and the general election campaign hasn't even started yet. So I think regardless of whether, you know, we're up two points, down two points or whatever, in that sort of ballpark, the election is just is not won. I mean, it's really a mistake to think that it is. And, you know, I know some of the Westminster commentary have decided that Labour are inevitably going to be the next government. But the polling, at least, does not support that conclusion. And so I think that that for, for Kia, for Rachel, for, for Labour's leading shadow cabinet politicians, they are first and foremost focused on what do we need to do now to turn what is clearly a move away from the Conservatives uh, and, a, and, a, and a huge frustration with, you know, the last five years and the last 13 years of um, the Conservatives being in power to a vote for us and for us as individuals who you know and have heard of and understand what we stand for and understand what our, you know, party would be like in government. And I think that is their main objective, whatever happens with the polls in the next sort of six months or so. Emma. Keir Starmer's recently reshuffled his team into what we assume is the sh- roughly the shape it will take in the run into the election. What are the key points we should take away from from what's changed? Well, I suppose one of the key things is we're probably about a year out now from a general election. I mean, it could the general election could take place any time up to January 2025. We've just done the scenario planning here. So I think the last, literally the last legal date it could take place is the 28th of January 2025. We're expecting before that, expecting autumn. So we are a year out. So at that point, when you do a reshuffle, I think you want to keep your top team stable from there on out for a whole range of reasons. So I think the first big message is this is probably the team Starmer is going to take into the election with him. Partly because we want to give them time to get on top of their brief. You know, lots of our work here at IFG shows that familiarity with the area that you're working on is a real bonus if you actually want to make change quickly in government. You want to give them time to build a public profile. They've got a year now for the public to get to know who they are, what their priorities are for the area that they're working on. Somebody like Angela Rayner probably have a bit less of a sense of what she's going to do with the levelling up brief. Um, So she's got a year now to land that. But I think the other kind of slightly nerdier IFG point is that you want to keep the team team stable because of access talks. So at some point, any time really from now until January, we're expecting Labour to formally request contact with the civil service. This is the contact that opposition Mm -hmm. always has about this far out from a general election with the civil service to partly for shadow secretaries of state and permanent secretaries to get to know each other, to start talking about potential policy plans. And you want to make sure that the shadow secretary of state who's having that conversation with the permanent secretary is the person who is going to be in that position if Labour win the election. You mentioned access talks there, Emma. Can you just tell us a bit more about what those are and what's likely to be involved? Sure. So these are the meetings that take place between um, the kind of top of the civil service permanent secretaries and shadow ministers um, on the Labour side. And these meetings happen normally, um, you know, kind of roughly a year out from from a general election, or we can talk a bit more about timing. And they're an opportunity, well, firstly, to build a relationship for them to get to know each other. If Labour win an election, then this is going to be like a crucial relationship for shadow ministers with their permanent secretary. And it's an opportunity to start talking about policy. The civil service will start doing planning and thinking about Labour's policy priorities ahead of the general election. So they're ready to move quickly if Labour win. And your pre-election contact, your access talks are a 
you know, an opportunity to start giving them a bit of insight. Interestingly, they're one of the, they're unique. I mean, they're one of the few spaces that the civil service can have discussions where ministers are not present and have no right to, you know, have any knowledge of the content. So it's a private space um, for the official opposition to talk to the civil service. I think the other really interesting question is around timing. You get access talks ahead of any general election. But if you look at 1997 and 2010, the two kind of transitional elections we've had, for both of those access talks started around 15, 16 months out from a general election. Now, if you assume- You not that long. <laughs> exactly. If you assume that it's going to be a, what, October, November general election, then they're already running a bit late. So I expect we're going to see them kicking off by, say, kind of January at the latest. So Anoush, does, has the reshuffle left anyone awkward on the outside for Keir Starmer? We saw at the Conservative conference some tricky things for Rishi Sunak with with ghosts of Christmas past, we might say. Are there, are there any equivalents for Starmer? I don't think there's going to be any equivalents as a fallout from the reshuffle because I think we would have seen noises off by now. Um Lisa Nandy, of course, it was seen um, her move from shadow levelling up to shadow international development was seen as a demotion. So she may feel a little bit out in the cold, but she agreed to stay in the shadow cabinet. And there hasn't been that backlash that you might have got from the past more turbulent reshuffles, who I do think might cause a bit of trouble, although he tried last year and it didn't really come off as Andy Burnham. Um, He is, you know, pushing Labour um, to go ahead with uh, HS2 to go against what the Conservatives have decided um, and I can see that he's already sort of building a case for it this week and I think he'll probably major on that at party conference and he's sort of done a line in making a nuisance of himself at, at Labour Party conferences over the past few years, you know, calling for proportional representation, for example, and also saying that we should abolish the whip system and all of these ideas that he has. So he might be a bit of a pain. Equally, I think we should look at Sadiq Khan as well. Sadiq Khan has really been, um, he's been a bit of a target for the Labour leadership over ULES and his commitment to sticking to it. Um, so he might feel a little bit emboldened to say more of how he feels than he has done in recent party conferences. I remember he, I did a panel with him last year and he was quite well behaved, even though you know some of the things that he truly believes. Maybe he'll be a bit more outspoken on things like Brexit um, and other issues this time. Thank you. You've just helped me shape my fringe attendance programme. <laughs> You've just published a fantastic interview, Anish, for the New Statesman with Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham. She doesn't sound very happy. No. So she said Labour has been immobilised um, because it's being so cautious. It's concentrating on focus groups at the expense of what she believes the electorate really want, which is a time for change on the scale of the 1945 Labour government rather than a 1997 one. She threatened, well, threatened is a bit strong, but she suggested that they might not give that donation for the general election campaign. They gave three million in um, 2019. Um, so, you know, there is this, I mean, Unite is still Labour's biggest financial backer. Um, it's it's kind of on the naughty step in terms of how the unions go at the moment. But um, there is the opportunity for Unite and the other unions to um, cause some mischief, particularly on the conference floor on certain motions. Wealth taxes, for example, look like they might be a motion that might cause a ruckus on the conference floor this year. Josh, what do you make of that critique of Labour that it's that what's happened so far is too safety first? And if Sunak's trying, has tried in his conference speech to portray himself as someone who's unafraid to make enemies and make the difficult decisions, is that going to create a problem for Starmer? Yeah, well, I think um, I would say two things about that. One is that Labour's conference, from its perspective, will be all about showing that it's a serious party of government, not a campaigning outfit. 
Um, and, you know, HS2 is quite a good example of that because the line at the moment is we have absolutely no idea if we were to win and we got into government, uh, what land will have been sold off that's already been bought, uh, what contracts will have been cancelled. And it would be irresponsible of us to make a commitment about what we would do in the absence of that knowledge. Now, on the one hand, some will say that that is a fudge. And that that's uh, a risk-averse, cautious, you know, boring thing to do. And in fact, what we should be doing is standing up for the North and committing to building the line in full, regardless of the facts. But actually, I think that it's a perfectly sustainable position for a party that is serious about government to say, you know, the government has just made a serious choice that will have tons of implications over the next year for real people's lives, real bits of land, you know, real shell companies that have, that have been set up and so on. Uh, and so we would need to look at that before we make a firm view. Um, and I think that the, the important thing never to forget about whether or not Labour win the next election is that it is just as important how many Conservative voters stay at home as it is how many Labour voters show out. And Labour have to never, ever, ever shy away from, you know, essentially de-risking itself so that a large enough chunk of those voters think, you know what, if they end in, it won't be so bad. There's not too much here that I'm worried about. And I think that it will be a really important goal of this conference still. I was struck by one of the things that Penny Mordaunt said in her speech at a Conservative conference, which was to say, Kestama had pretended to be Corbyn, to be Kinnock, and now in Act 3, he wants you all to believe he's Tony Blair. Is there a risk that voters will think that's right and that this is a kind of, that he's trying to, to change the persona according to what, what is to his advantage at any given time? I think one of the vulnerabilities of Keir Starmer when you speak to the public and when you sit in on focus groups and you sort of get the general mood of the country is that he is someone who blows with the wind. He sort of waits to see which way the wind is blowing and then goes in that direction. Um, a flip-flopper, which is why flip-flops appeared at the Conservative Party conference. It's not a coincidence that the Conservatives have used that line and Captain Hindsight and things like that because it does actually ring true with the public which is why while I agree with Josh that taking a pragmatic stance on some of these big policy decisions particularly ones with big price tags is you know is is wise there is a risk that you look like you're not making any decisions and actually voters sometimes don't mind if you make a decision that's not that popular as long as they think that they know what you're doing and that you believe in something and that you're taking a taking a stand so I do think they need to be a little bit careful on all the u-turning and that's something that um Sharon Graham the general secretary of unite was getting at with her with her um uh, analysis that they were sort of immobilized. So I do think they need to take a stance on some key issues. And, you know, if you're constantly talking about taking tough decisions, then you do have to take some and stick to them rather than sort of wait and see. Josh, do you think we'll see much more in terms of policy detail? Because I think that for me was one of the striking things about the Sunak speech was, you know, and obviously the government has the advantage of an entire civil service to help them uh, develop their policies but you know there were some quite detailed crunchy proposals there and that is something that that people have been saying about labor that you know they they they've got their missions but really the detail of of what they would do isn't there yet and isn't there because they don't want to be critiqued for policies that some people might not like so is that going to change do you think at the conference well less always changes at conference than people uh, <laughs> like to true. set expectations up beforehand um so uh, there, I think there will be some bold and interesting policy that comes out of, um, conference, including in, you know, both Keir and Rachel's speeches. So I think to some extent, post conference, we will think this is a party capable, capable of putting out serious thought through policies. 
there's a long, long way to go, both to the election until, you know, that underlying problem is solved. And I completely agree with Anoush that, you know, you might well, as a plausible party of government, say, look, we're not going to make a call on HS2, you know, whatever the price tag is, 32, 36 billion, um, without knowing what the facts are on the ground um, until we actually were to get into government. However, you do have to take a stand and you do have to make arguments on things in particular. You know, the public need to feel like you're persuading them of something. Um and, you know, that persuasion, that, that act of persuasion, that process of persuasion is what allows you to withstand the sort of heat of a general election campaign. You know, you can rub off arguments, you can go into Sunday news programs because you have something that you want to say and persuade people of and you're excited to do that. So I absolutely do think that it's crucial that Labour, you know, at conference and afterwards goes out and makes arguments for things that it's either already committed to or that it's going to commit to. You know, investment is one obvious example of this, um, but also this sort of evolving agenda around security and insecurity, you know. It's promising the British people that they, after four years of a Labour government, will feel sufficiently secure that they can go out and buy a pint at the pub, go to the cinema, you know, do these basic things that so many people in this country are not able to do. It's a very demanding thing to say you're going to do. And to be serious about the policy implications of that is quite a thing. Um, and so I think what we will see more of at conference and what we, sh we will hopefully see more of after conference is building some of those big arguments about how the British public will feel after four years of Labour in power. Emma, do you agree that's the main task for Starmer in his conference speech? I think so. I mean, I think exactly as Anoush says, the big criticism that appears to have landed a bit from the Conservatives is the idea that Starmer doesn't really kind of stand for much, or it's not clear kind of, you know, what, what he stands for. Um, and so I think the task is, you know, can he land a kind of compelling retort to that? And can that retort connect sufficiently with voters around the, the problems that they feel they're facing in their lives? I think something that's come out really clear, clearly from almost every piece of polling that we've seen like, over the last couple of months is that people feel the country isn't working. They feel things are broken. So, you know, can Starmer make the connection between the missions that Labour have outlined and what people feel isn't working for them in their day-to-day -day lives? I think partly that is about policy detail and getting into to, to, you know, a bit more of what what some of those missions mean in practice. But I think on the other hand, in opposition, you don't want to go too far into the detail, too far out. As Josh says, you know, we're a long way from the general election. And actually, there are really big risks in attempting to, you know, in painstaking detail, set out exactly how you're going to do something, exactly how it's going to be implemented, exactly how much it's going to cost. When in opposition, your resources are incredibly limited. You just don't have, um, you know, the insight that you have in government when you have the civil service behind you. Um, so I think, you know, it's about getting that balance. You need the vision. You need a bit of the detail, but you don't want to go too far before you're in government. I completely agree with what Emma just said. And I think that, you know, thinking about what policy, what role policy detail plays for a government and an opposition is a really important thing. And I think that, you know, in, in opposition, policy is about evincing an argument, a thing that you're trying to persuade about. You know, the people always talk about the, the um, Tony Blair pledge card. Well, they were small, very specific things, but they evinced an argument. They were a proof point that a politician could go back to and say, and this is why we're saying what we're saying to you at this general election. And I think the part of what people are hungry for and part of what Labour, you know, will develop over the coming months is what are those sort of two or three go-to policies that really make the case for the argument that Labour are making to the country? And I think that's the kind of policy detail that we should hope and expect for, as opposed to the kind of policy detail that you can deliver, you know, when you're in government. Okay, let's dig a bit deeper into some of the policy questions facing Labour. Anoush, Sunak has laid out some pretty big challenges uh, for Labour, particularly, as already discussed on HS2, also prior to conference around net zero. 
How do you think Labour is going to respond to those? Yeah, it's really difficult to tell. I think the HS2 decision, while it might not have been the, the, the main reason to take it, has become a bit of a trap t- for Labour. They haven't got a line on it yet as of the time of recording. And uh, as I said earlier, it, it's going to make things a little bit difficult, I think, at conference, particularly as with the move of Lisa Nandy, there are some within within the sort of tears of the party who think that levelling up has kind of been allowed to die a death. Um, and I think that would be a problem for for Labour because it is something that, um, you know, they, they, they did have quite a substantial policy platform on. Um, so I do think that that's going to be risky for them. I imagine that they will probably get through by fudging it and saying what exactly what Josh said. I think they'd probably steal his lines from this podcast um, and say, you know, they don't know what land is going to be sold and they don't know what the costs are going to be by the time they get in, but they are committed to X, Y, and Z, you know, connecting up the North, etc. So they'll, they'll probably try and get away with that on that one. Um, in terms of other policy areas, um, I think they do need to say something more on education. We had Rishi Sunak's maths till 18 and also this new um, qualification that he wants to introduce Introduce. You know, it's unlikely to happen under the current government as we see it now. It's going to take a long while for that to come about. But I do think that Labour, because they talk a lot about smashing the class ceiling and things, they they probably need to come up with something, needn't have a big price tag about how they would change the education system. Um, so I would expect to see a bit more on that in Keir Starmer's speech, particularly as they the Tories kind of stole a march on their childcare policy last year. I totally agree, Anish, on education. I think if you know we look at what we know so far about the five missions, the opportunity mission was the one that was supposed to kind of tie them together. But actually, if you looked at the policy detail beneath that, things like, you know, what was it, retention payments for teachers, some kind of tweet stuff around school improvement offers, it didn't quite feel like it lived up to, to the right kind scale. Of exactly. Yeah. And so I think you're exactly right. Education is the space that we might get a bit more on in conference. We certainly need a bit more in conference. And Josh, can you tell us what you think about the net zero space? Obviously, we've seen Sunak's announcements before conference saying that he would roll back some of the target dates, um, still stick to the long-term target, which he hasn't really explained how that works. But what do you think Labour will do in that space? Well, this is fortunately, I think, an area in which uh, the policy from the government is thin at best. Uh, there's a perfectly plausible story after that very dramatic speech that was supposed to be outside number 10 uh, that nothing really has changed all that much. Um, And, you know, it's an appeal to a certain chunk of the Tory base who, you know, have oil, um, use heating oil to heat their homes and think, oh my goodness, you know, in whatever it was, 10 years, I've got to get rid of this thing. That doesn't sound plausible to me. Well, don't worry, you don't have to. So um, I think in a way, there is not a big policy shift that Labour needs to respond to. And I think Labour should and is remaining very cognizant of that fact. I think what it presses is the question of how, and this is going to be a big question in our politics, how does the sort of language of net zeros and the arguments about what's required and the balance between sacrifice and opportunity, how does that sort of flow through our politics in Britain. And in particular, if you have a Conservative Party that is willing to openly be um, sceptical about at least some of the measures that seem to be required to get to net zero and possibly even about, you know, the the, the necessity of that target, Labour is going to have to think very carefully about how it prosecutes arguments in that space for the sorts of policies it thinks are needed. Um, and I think you've seen a shift here in, in Labour's language, you know, significantly over the past sort of year or so, which I think you will see you know, further in in conference um, speeches. 
from talking about the purpose of its investment program and the purpose of its agenda around, you know, so-called green industries as being to reach net zero as quickly as possible because there's a climate emergency and it's mm -hmm. a moral imperative to being actually this is an economic argument about the state of our country, what's gone wrong with our country, namely chronically low and high regional variations in productivity. And that the main, one of the main causes of that at least is investment, chronically low levels of investment. And that is the problem we would solve. And I think that that shift that's already underway um, helps labor, you know, negotiate much more effectively the kind of attack that I think Rishi um, laid out. Yeah, know, I remember speaking to someone who is on Joe Biden's re-election campaign and their advice for labor on this stuff was, you know, when they talk about the green stimulus, they don't talk about that. They just talk about jobs. And I think Labour's definitely taken that lesson on. It's absorbed that. And um, I think you can see from the reaction from some businesses to Rishi Sunak's speech on rowing back some of the net zero targets that Labour can also move into the space of being the sort of serious party of business that will stick to its um, commitments and m improve investment into the country. And that's that's a space that it's been trying to move into for a good you know couple of years now. And you can always see at party conferences how popular or at least how interesting Labour is to businesses by the number of lobbyists who are attending. And I'm sure we'll see that this weekend. I totally agree that there's a real opportunity there with industry because I think, you know, actually Sunak's kind of watering down of some of the interim net zero targets combined with then the kind of HS2 decision create this broader narrative about kind of instability and uncertainty, which is really troubling industry. I mean, we were talking about, um, you know, how things felt at Conservative Party conference. And one of the other things that was most noticeable was that industry is really worried. They do not like messages about unstable policy frameworks. It's not the kind of, you know, the, the right space for investment. And so there's clearly a real opportunity there for Labour in being the kind of more serious kind of stable party who are setting out something that industry can believe in and invest in. Emma, do you think there's also going to be pressure for Starmer and crucially Rachel Reeves to show where they are actually willing to spend money? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that there's probably only so long that Starmer can avoid talking about how some of the biggest problems today affect his ability to deliver the things that he said he's going to deliver, particularly around money. Um, you know, the tightness of the forecasts for public services make it really difficult to see how meaningful reform is possible without actually spending something. Um, I think it's really hard to combine the kind of big vision that Starmer is rightly setting out without having much to say about how you're going to kind of raise the money to put that into practice. You can see the challenge for Labour. This is the area they are most worried about and, and, you know, rightly so. But I do think, you know, the closer you get to that election, the more you're landing some of that policy detail, the harder it is to avoid talking about how you pay for it. Yeah, this is why I think the constitutional and regulatory changes that they've been talking about will probably feature quite highly. So <laughs> yeah. so devolution is an obvious example. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to cost a lot, but you can paint it as something that could make a big change in people's lives and the workers' rights changes as well. You know, that's the sort of regulatory change, which may cost businesses, but it doesn't necessarily cost the exchequer in that, in that direct way. So watering down those plans as it was reported you know they may be doing over the summer would probably be a mistake because they do have to be able to say something concrete but they've not got that much money to play with within their fiscal rules. Josh how do you think they're going to square this circle of showing that they will be willing to invest in some places but avoiding the Tory critique that Labour maxes out the credit card and you can't trust Labour with with money? Yeah well I think there's several steps in the argument here that they need to make, some of which are um, underway and some of which are uh, hopefully in the pipeline. 
One is to distinguish relentlessly and clearly investment from spending. Um, and, you know, in the work that we at Labour Together have done, uh, the public get that distinction. You know, you, you get a mortgage because you're buying a house and in 20 years you think that'll be worth it, um, even though it's a bit scary right now. Um, and uh, in order to do that effectively, I think one of the things that Labour might consider doing is saying, finding some examples of things that it's not going to do that are painful. We are not going to pay nurses any more than the Conservative Party are going to pay them because that is spending and not investment. Um, you know, one thing we've noticed is that even though in a school, this is in our polling, even though in a school, the walls are capital spend, the building is capital spend and the salaries of the teachers are day to day spend. And so they are, you know, in the way that the Treasury looks at them different. Actually, voters tend to think of schools as in general, day-to-day -day spending, same with hospitals, whereas roads, different bucket. That's obviously investment, you know. Um, so it, to navigate the politics of that, Labour needs to be really brutally clear about what it is not going to think of as investment. And, you know, crumbling schools and nurses pay, to just pick two examples, are very good examples of hard choices where you can be clear about the fact that investment is different from spending because we're not going to do these things with it. So that's one important argument that I think Labour just has to win because whatever happens, the Conservatives are going to say that, you know, Labour's borrowing will put up taxes on households by, you know, a thousand pounds per family per year. Um, and that's why you shouldn't vote for Labour because, you know, whatever they tell you, your taxes will go up. The Conservatives are going to make that argument pretty much whatever does Labour does in between now and the next election. And so Labour has to land that distinction in the minds of voters, I think, to, to, to be able to engage in that argument. You'll be amused to know that I went to a fringe event at the Conservative conference where Jacob Rees-Mogg made that argument very strongly <laughs> about the distinction between spending and investment. <laughs> but presumably is against both. Uh, <laughs> no comment. The, um, the one other thing I would say about the public service piece in particular is that, you know, technology is often sort of derided as a ridiculous get out um, to public service reform solutions and you know in some ways of course thinking that technology can be the answer to British public services right now is clearly not right however there is a really important role for I think Labour politicians in public service reform to find stories of um, literal examples of where things have worked well and what that has involved and to tell those stories um, because in a world where there just is no money you have to be able to explain how you're going to get from the world that we are currently in, where everybody's public services just are not working, to a world in which they, they might just about work. And I think thinking really clearly about how you could restructure both central government and devolved government to make much better use of technology and engaging with the private sector in relation to technology is a really important way for Labour to, to do that. Josh, at the Conservative conference, it felt like the party was, if not exactly declaring a culture war, then certainly firing some early shots. You have a paper which tries to find a way to avoid conflict. Yes, we do. <laughs> and your listeners, if they are inclined to, should check it out. The argument of that paper and our view about the so-called culture wars is that they're mostly... The, the, the phrase culture wars that people use is mostly a sort of bubble Westminster-y thing. You know, the British population, unlike other populations, including the United States, are not uh, perfectly organized into two poles that have consistent sets of attitudes about social and cultural issues that basically hate each other and don't trust each other and see their leaders as members of one or other club and that's all they need to know about them. So, you know, in the level of the British electorate, there are not culture wars. And what that means is 
is that for for serious politicians who want to navigate some of these difficult questions, they need to treat them as policy questions, sometimes hard policy questions, which is what they are, um, and to talk about them and explain them and describe them in those terms. And the most important thing about that is not to dodge them. You, you, you can't pretend that there aren't policy questions there and you can't shy away from, you know, immersing yourself in the debate to some extent so that you can confidently talk about those policy questions and how you would engage with them. Um, and, you know, the best way around the culture wars is to firstly not think of them as culture wars, but then also to engage seriously in the underlying policy questions that tend to often get muddied by the culture wars. And, you know, one thing that was very clear to me from the conservative conferences, they are obsessed with these issues, but they are surprisingly uninterested often in the underlying actual policy questions. And can you give us an example of, of, of what you could understand in those with those two different framings? Well, so the most difficult question of all for Labour um, often has been the question of um, the difference between sex and gender and what the implications of that are for um, public policy. There are really difficult questions about public spaces, you know, admission to those public spaces, public swimming pools, you know, schools, prisons, um, and on what basis you should make decisions about who does and who does not get to be um, in those spaces. The um, only serious way to engage in that conversation is to talk about the specifics, you know, to talk about the cases, to talk about what they tell you about the broader thing. And, you know, the, 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 the people in the population who think that there is absolutely no difference between sex and gender and um, they are, you know, sex itself is a sort of cultural construct and therefore there should be no distinctions in public spaces between uh, based on the grounds of sex. There, there's a very, 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 very small portion of our population who actually think that. Um, and similarly, you know, those who think that there are not serious questions about how we treat people whose biological sex is different from their gender identity are few and far between. Both of those extremes have, you know, megaphones in the public debate and through Twitter and, you know, likes and engagements and so on. But a serious party of government is able to think clearly about those extremes and navigate its way through the questions about schools, about prisons. And understand and accept that, you know, each of those public domains are different kinds of spaces. And the criteria that we use to think about who should be, you know, admitted to them and, and on what basis are going to be different across those spaces. And just talk about that. A final question to Anish and Josh. Is Labour ready for a general election and when does it want one to be held? <laughs> oh, I wish you'd told me you were going to ask me that because I could have asked around. I'm not sure when they'd want one to be held. Probably, you know, the sooner the better. I mean, look at the polls. Um, I think in terms of being ready, it's hard to tell. I think they... So Keir Starmer is a, is a man, according to people who know him and work with him, who doesn't like the word vision. And he doesn't like he doesn't like this idea of getting up and making speeches that outline the vision for his country. And when people say, you know, la the Labour Party doesn't have that vision there yet, you know, he dismisses that. So I don't think we're ever actually going to see that. I think what we're going to see is, uh, is those things that Josh mentioned, those kind of flagship policies that maybe give a suggestion of what a Labour... Britain would be all about. So I think we need that that more concrete side of it. So in that sense, I don't think they're quite ready. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, I don't know. It, it, to what extent are you ever ready for an election? You don't know quite what the Conservatives are going to throw at you, although I think we've got a pretty good idea over the course of this conference, um, culture wars and sort of personal attacks. Um, so whether or not they're ready for that, I think uh, only an election will be, be the test. Josh? So I think Labour are almost ready for a general election. I think any party that 
uh, has decided that they're ready for a general election and, you know, buckles up and you know, cycles around the place smiling because it's ready for a general election, probably isn't ready. Uh, fear of losing is one of the most important drivers of uh, good decisions in politics, in my opinion. So Labour is so much more ready than I have ever seen it in my professional life uh, in terms of both its organizing, campaigning capacity, its infrastructure, its data, you know, in any which way, Labour is a serious professional outfit now in a way that it really has not been for a long, long time. But there is still a lot more to do. Um, and in every bit of those parts of the Labour Party, there is there is more to do and more being done. So I think it's as ready as I've ever seen it. Uh, but it is certainly not stopping because there is a lot more that can be done. And I think, you know, I think Labour is hungry for a general election. I think it's interesting. I think, the, you know, this, this, the most senior politicians want to fight an election and they are confident in their capacity to take on this, you know, group of conservative politicians and leaders, again, in a way that I've not seen up close um, for a long time. Um, and I think, you know, were a general election to be called in November this year in the unlikely event, I think that the top of the Labour Party would relish the prospect of fighting that general election. That's it for today. Thank you to Emma Norris and especially to Anusha Kellyan and Josh Simons. Really great to speak to you both today and maybe see you both in Liverpool. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. A quick plug too for our new podcast, a joint effort with Paul Johnson of the IFS and Anand Menon of UK in a Changing Europe. It's called The Expert Factor. And yes, it's an expert deep dive into the big issues and questions facing British politics right now. Do check it out. For now though, Si, we're back on the road, as is the Labour Party. See you next week for the post-conference fallout. Have a great weekend, everyone.